to the book of James, chapter 1. And I am excited because we're starting a sermon series. I'm looking forward so much to see um, what Joe and Jim and Dave will have to share from this book. We're going to be taking turns, rotating through it, but focusing on this wonderful book. And I love this book. It's so straightforward and so practical. And the purpose of this book, the entire question that James is looking to answer, is what does Christian living look like? How do we live out these principles that we see elsewhere in the Bible? What does the practical Christian living look like? So James is a book that I've turned to several times in times of transition in my life. I was flipping through an old notebook um, a while ago and from when Chris and I were in Ecuador and found it interesting that I was studying James at the end of our time there. I picked it up again when we moved to Okanagan, and I remember lying on the dock at uh, Crawfish Lake up at the Colomb's cabin at the men's retreat in 2015, when we had just moved here a couple months after that, and I felt like I should memorize the book of James. So I got about a chapter in, and then I got discouraged, and I'm going to take it up again now. If you feel called to do that with me, I would encourage you, let's memorize it together. It's not that long, but whether you choose to memorize it or not, I pray that you will devote yourself to the study of this wonderful short book as we study it together, so that we may all be blessed by it. So let's open with prayer. God, I thank you for giving us your word. I thank you that the faith that you've called us to is not just something whimsical or pie in the sky, but it's concrete, it's real, it touches every aspect of our life, that we can live it out at home, at work, at school, wherever you call us to be. God, I pray that you would be with us in this time as we study your word. Cause us to be more faithful to you. Amen. So... Book of James um, has traditionally been thought to be written by James, the brother of Jesus. I don't see any reason to question that. There are a few recent scholars who like to question everything, but that's been the tradition of the church. Um, it seems consistent with the evidence that we have both within and outside the Bible. So that's the uh, direction that we're going to take this from. Um, James, the brother of Jesus. And we know that James was skeptical of Jesus while he was alive. In John chapter 7, it says that Jesus' brothers and his mother came to collect him, to take charge of him, almost to imprison him, because they were, thought that he was crazy for um, sacrificing so much for this ministry uh, that he had been called to. So James was skeptical of Jesus while he was alive, but he became an eyewitness of the resurrection. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that James saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, and that's important. Um, if you remember from my last sermon, it means that he meets one of the requirements to be an apostle, that he saw the resurrected Lord in the flesh. And indeed, Paul calls him apostle in Galatians chapter 1. He's also called a pillar of the church in Galatians chapter 2. In Acts 15, it was James who gave the final words at the Jerusalem council on whether Gentiles must be circumcised to be accepted into the church. So we know he was a key leader in the Jerusalem church, which was really kind of the center of where Jesus' ministry started. He said to go to, throughout Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. So 
James was right there at the beginning. As soon as he saw his brother resurrected from the dead, he knew he would be called to this ministry, and he became a pillar of that Jerusalem church. He was called James the Just because he had a commitment to godliness that was exceptional. He was committed to obeying the word of God, and he was also a devout man of prayer. One of his nicknames was Camel Knees because they were so roughened up by the time he spent on his knees. And he was martyred in AD 62. He was thrown from the pinnacle of a temple and then beaten to death with a club. So we should consider James an authority on suffering. Obviously, he wrote this before that happened, but you got to think that if his life ended that way, it was probably like that throughout his ministry in Jerusalem, which was a rough place to be a Christian. So he's an authority. When he speaks about suffering, he knows what he's talking about. It's not somebody who's had a great life and never suffered who's talking to us. So James was able to have the attitude about suffering that he did because he rightly understood his identity. It's interesting in these first few verses, he calls himself James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many ways that he could have introduced himself. He could have said James the Just. He could have said James Camelnees. He could have said pillar of the church. He could have said an apostle, but he said none of those things. He knew his identity as a servant. And he was able to, um, sorry, a servant of a deceased master no longer calls himself that master's servant. And think about it. If I'm a servant in a household and my master dies, I've got to go on and serve somebody else, right, in order to make a living for myself. But James doesn't say, I was a servant of Jesus Christ, and then he died, now I serve somebody else. He says he is a servant of Jesus Christ. He knew that Jesus had been resurrected because he saw him, and that is so important. That gave him the foundation to endure the suffering that he had. Do you have that kind of confidence in your Lord? We need to. If we don't, then suffering is going to rock our world. It's going to knock us off our foundation if our foundation isn't Christ. We need to have that solid foundation in him, or everything that comes at us is going to be too much for us. So the date of writing of this book um, is somewhere between the year 44 and the year 62. So 62 is when James died. 44 is when the persecution of Christians began resulting in the diaspora. And so he talks about the 12 tribes and the dispersion. We know it was after 44. It's possible this book was written before the year 49. Uh, there's no mention made to the controversy that led to the Jerusalem Council that James was at. And so um, it's possible, we don't know for sure, that this book was actually written before the year 49. And if that's the case, it would be the first, the earliest, the oldest New Testament writing. Remember, James was the brother of Jesus. This stuff is being written and happening right after Jesus' death. So James says that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two are presented in parallel, that God and the Lord Jesus Christ have equal authority over James. Throughout the book, James uses the word Lord, sometimes to refer to God the Father, and sometimes to Jesus. And so the same title is used for both of those. And indeed, that word Lord that, uh, that James uses here for the Lord Jesus Christ 
is commonly used in the Septuagint to translate the word, Yah the word Yahweh, which is the name of God, the Hebrew name of God. The Septuagint is a Greek, an early Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so it's interesting to see those parallels in terminology. So when James says that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not talking about two different beings. He's talking about God, who is one in being and three in person. And they're given equal authority over his life. So keep that in mind as we go through here. I trust that all listening here are convinced of the truth um, that God is one. But we have one more place in here that testifies not only that God is one, but that Jesus is God and that he is resurrected. So the 12 tribes in the dispersion tells us James's target audience, um, which is churches throughout Asia Minor. There are some commentators who look at this and um, think that James was writing um, primarily to Gentiles with the idea that um, going with the idea of being grafted in. And we know that that truth is there, that Gentiles have been grafted into the body and into true Israel. But uh, it seems to me that he's um, writing primarily to Jews. Um, the book has a decidedly Jewish flavor, but there are undoubtedly Gentiles in the churches that James wrote to. So he's writing to people that are distributed out. And as soon as these people came to faith in Christ, whether Jews or Gentiles, they came together in brotherhood because they saw that the work of Jesus on the cross had torn down the divisions between people. So we shouldn't think that it's being directed only at Jews. This is for Gentiles as well. And it talks about the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Once again, uh, the year AD 44 was the start of tremendous persecution for Christians that ended, well, hasn't ended, but culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem, um, some of the horrible things that Nero, Emperor Nero did to Christians. And so we should consider James's audience an authority on suffering because they knew what it was like to be persecuted for their faith. They knew what it was like to be beaten, to be cheated. They knew what it was like to walk into a store and have somebody refuse to serve them because of their faith. These people knew about suffering. We can trust uh, both James and his audience that it is genuine. This letter is um, a little bit different than some of the other books in the New Testament. Like Paul's writings were primarily directed to one particular church that had very unique issues. It was very specific, mentioning people by name. Um, you know, very, very specific. In contrast, James has a more general focus. He looks at themes that are applicable to all Christians everywhere throughout time because he knew this book was going to be read in this church and passed on to another one and another one and another one. He wanted to make sure everybody got something out of his writing. So this is something uh, you could think of it as a circular letter, one that's going to be carried from church to church to bless everybody. The general nature of some of the um, statements in this book have caused some people to call this the Proverbs of the New Testament. I think there's some value to thinking of it in that way, that it is a book of incredible wisdom. But I think the book is much more cohesive than that nickname suggests. And I hope as we dive into this and go through it together, you'll see the connections that bring James's themes together. So verses two through four, James says, count all joy, my brothers, when you make trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
We see a progression here that trials results in the testing of the faith, and that results in steadfastness, and that results in perfection in the faith. I was going to read a chunk from, uh, um, it's called A Little Book on the Christian Life, written by John Calvin, but I forgot it, so I'll do my best from memory. Um, what he wrote in there was basically that it would be ungrateful of us when we encounter trials to not expect that God will come through. And when we come through those trials, if we don't experience a greater sense of trust in God, then that's a problem. He also says that um, he also says that we don't need to uh, come to suffering with this um, wooden, dead, like stoic approach where we want to just come and oh, I'm happy no matter what happens to me, because we know that we're going to face trials. It says it here. It says it elsewhere. Jesus tells us to be joyful when those things happen to us. We know that Jesus in his ministry wept. We know that when he suffered on the cross, he wept. And so it's not like we're somehow going to come at this and shut off all feeling and be happy-go-lucky no matter what happens to us. It's okay to feel sadness. It's okay to feel pain. It's okay to feel trials are real. But the point is that within all of that, we have joy because we have the work of God in us. We know that the early church was confronted with much persecution, as I was talking about. And they could receive that with joy only when they understood that those trials are given to them by God. If you remember from October, my October sermon, I talked about... Um, the purpose that suffering has in our life. Why do bad things happen to good people? So you can go back and read, uh, listen to that recording if you need a refresher. But the idea is that if we don't have the foundation of Christianity, if we don't have the truth of God in us, then when we face suffering, what's the point? What's the point in going on? But if we know that God is working in us and that he works all things for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then we know that anything that comes our way, even if it has an evil origin, that God is using that to work our good, our maturity, our perfection in the faith. So do you respond appropriately to trials in your life? Or do you complain? Or do you seek the first way out? Do you try to solve it in your own way? Or do you come at it on your knees and say, God, build me with joy. Fill me with joy. And give me the ability to face this and come out stronger because of it. I know when I face difficult times, a lot of the times, there's two things I want. First, I want to know what to do. And second, I want a whole lot more money to throw out the problem. And James addresses both of these problems. Um, when Kirsty and I moved from Prosser, we had a disagreement with our landlord. And I was so frustrated about it because he wanted to charge us a bunch of money for something that we didn't think was damage. It was normal wear and tear. 
and seemed like he was just trying to nickel and dime us, and it was really difficult. And I tell you, if I had known the words to say, or if I had had enough money to throw out that problem, I would not have been stressed out about it. So James says, he addresses both of those things. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we need to avoid a couple of errors in interpreting this chunk. Um, first one is, this isn't talking about some kind of name it and claim it promise where you ask God for what you want and then he hands it to you. This is talking specifically about wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God and it will be given to him. So it would be a serious error to try to spread this promise out into other areas beyond wisdom. The second thing we need to avoid is an idea that if you don't get what you prayed for, if you don't get wisdom when you ask for it, it's because you're a doubter. That's a possibility within this text, but the word order matters. James doesn't say, if you don't get wisdom from God after asking it, it's because you're a doubter. What he says is, if you doubt, you won't receive wisdom. Okay, so it doesn't go both ways. Sometimes we might be discouraged if we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we still don't feel like we know what to do. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're doubting. And so don't be discouraged. Keep on praying because the promise is there that God will give his wisdom to us. I think the words, a double-minded man, is interesting because it suggests a split personality. You know, David said earlier today, you can pray and not worry, or you can worry and not pray. And I think that's exactly the type of thing that this is talking about. Sometimes we might come to a difficult decision, and through a sense of deep spirituality, we might want to receive some kind of sign from God about what to do. And I think that there can be good intentions there, but we need to be very careful because we're not to put the Lord our God to the test. That's very clear in scripture. And we're also not supposed to fall into sorcery or necromancy or divination, those things that can give us information from outside. So we need to be careful when we're coming to things. You know, you might uh, come to a situation where You've got two options, and you're praying about them, and you read about them, and you don't know what to do, and you say, God, I'm going to flip a coin. Heads, I do it. Tails, I don't. Be careful. There are a couple of examples in the Bible where people did this type of thing. Uh, the most, two most famous are Gideon in Judges chapter 6. He said, God, if you want me to lead Israel, then I'm going to put out this fleece. And I want you to make it be dewy on the fleece and nowhere else. And that's what happened. And the next night, Gideon says, well, <laughs> this time, make it the other way around. Dewy on the ground all around, but nothing on the fleece. But it's interesting, as he does that second request of God, he says, let not the Lord's anger burn against me. So this wasn't God who told him to do this sign, this trick, or whatever. 
I think this is an example of Gideon putting the Lord to the test, and he knew it. And God chose to answer his prayer and, and show him the sign that he asked for because God had a greater plan for Israel. But I don't think Gideon was doing what he was supposed to there. Another example is in uh, Acts chapter 2, where the apostles choose a replacement for Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus and then commit suicide. They prayed a whole bunch. They obviously had a large pool of people to choose from. And through the wisdom that God had given them, they narrowed it down to two. And at that point, they drew lots. So I don't know where to go entirely with that one, to be honest, because it doesn't say anything negative about that act. And we know that Mattathias, who replaced Judas, was an excellent servant of the Lord after that. So here's the principle that I would suggest for you in this area. God has given us each mundane skills and knowledge and wisdom. And when we pray, he increases those things. And so when you're faced with a difficult choice, and I would say this especially for the young people in our church, when you're faced with a difficult choice, pray, read the Bible, ask God for wisdom, and make a decision from what you think is best based on examining the evidence of the situation, rather than resorting to some kind of a trick or a test of God. And I think what you'll find is that if you are pursuing God's will, there are multiple options that are excellent. There are multiple things that you can do with your life or in any situation to live out the principles of the Bible. Again, when Christy and I were leaving Ecuador, we were looking at anything as far as what country are we going to be in? What job are we going to do? And I prayed a lot about it, and I had a strong sense from God that wherever we ended up, we would serve him. And that, I think, is the principle that we should do. We ended up here, not through some draw a name from a hat, not through some voice from heaven, but just making decisions based on the wisdom that God has given us. And I'm confident that this is where we're supposed to be. So stay away from tricks and sorcery, but do seek earnestly after the wisdom that God will give. We don't want to be double-minded in our approach to God. We don't want to be one foot in tricks and one foot in the Bible. In verse 9 through 11, James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So this comes back to the idea of what are the two things we want when we face difficult times? We want to know what to do. We want the resources to face it. And James says that if you're a lowly brother, you should boast in your exaltation. That even if you're poor in material possessions, you're rich in the Lord, and you don't need those earthly riches to face this trial that he has placed in your life. And he gives a caution to the rich people that they shouldn't boast in the wealth that they have, but rather that they should rejoice in their humiliation. That they know that they have died to sin with Christ and have been humiliated before that. It says that the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And what I take from that is that if we come before God to face these difficult situations and we say, don't worry, I got this one. 
Let's make that problem go away. Let's make that problem go away. We fade away in the midst of our pursuits. When we trust in our own resources, we don't stand up under trials. We're not perfected by that trial. We fall. We fade away. That's not where we want to be. Verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So another translation for crown of life is uh, the crown that is life. So this is talking about the reward of salvation that is given to us. Um, The same phrase is used in Revelation 2.10, where it says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, or the crown that is life. We need to be careful here because you could say, um, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, as if standing steadfast would be what earns the crown of life. But in case we were tempted to think that way, if you look down into verse 17, it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Do you think the crown of life is a good gift and a perfect gift? You bet it is. It comes from above. It comes from the will of God. And we can't uh, think that we have somehow earned our salvation by being steadfast under trials. Like if we just bear up and grin and and, uh, say the right words and get through it, that God's going to present us with this crown because of that. If we bear up under it, it's evidence that we already have that crown. It's evidence of Christ already working in us. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So Satan often attacks us when we're in the midst of trials. He gets us when we feel weak. And I think the biggest temptation that we have is to question the goodness of God. If I'm facing this difficult time, is he really up there in control of my life? Does he really want what's best for me? And we might even question and say that that sinful desires that lead us into trouble are coming from God, that it's God's fault that I sin. Because it would be so much easier to be faithful if my life was all easy, right? That's not what James is saying is true. He says that God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so we need to see that there's a difference between temptation and testing. In verse 2, we see, sorry, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing is what God gives And so Jesus in the wilderness was tested by God, but he was tempted by Satan. There's a difference there, a key difference, and I know it seems subtle, but it's important to bear that in mind. There's also a difference between external and internal temptation. External temptation came to Jesus as he was out there, and Satan was whispering, Hey, aren't you hungry? Hey, don't you think you're powerful enough, great enough, that God will save you if you jump off? Don't you want the kingdoms of the world? That was external temptation. And we experience those as well. I think Satan is 
more subtle than he was to Jesus, but we still experience those. Jesus did not, however, experience internal temptation, and that's something that we do because we have a root in Adam, because we all are born with a sin nature. And so we're tempted not only by external things coming at us, but our own internal desires. And those desires, when they conceive, if they connect through to our heart, then they result in sin, just as naturally as conception in people happens. It's what happens. When you have desire and you give it a place to land, it conceives and bears forth sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, results in one thing, death. We need to be careful right from the start at our desire. I don't want you to think that somehow you can lose your salvation from some heinous sin because that's not what the Bible teaches. Our sin is cut short before it reaches its full maturity if we are in Christ. That work of God in our lives to sanctify us, to purify us, to keep us from being as sinful as we otherwise would be, that works in us and cuts that sin short before it is fully grown, resulting in final spiritual death. But we still need to be cautious of our desires that we don't give them a place to land. I think that there's a difference between a desire and a sin, and I think that that's here. The idea is to move past, to shut that out, to turn your face and look at God and glorify him when you're tempted so that that desire doesn't turn into sin, that we don't let it live out. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So natural lights around us are subject to variation. These lights above us are flickering thousands of times, maybe hundreds of times a second. An electrician would know. The moon rises and sets. It waxes and wanes. It has eclipses. The sun likewise rises and sets and has eclipses. We know if we look at the stars, they flicker and they go up and down. But the Father of lights is not subject to variation, and as such, he's greater than them. He's also the Father of the lights in the sense that he created them, but the emphasis here is on God's constancy, which is a comfort in times of trials. We might think that since my situations are different, maybe God's different, but that's not the case. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always faithful. He is always pure. He is always bright. The Father of heavenly lights is greater than any source of light we would look at otherwise. And it is he who gives every good and perfect gift to us. So we know that they are constant, we know that they are sure, and we know that they're sufficient for us to meet the things that we face in this life. Verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The phrase, he brought us forth, literally means he gave birth to us. How intimate is that, that God gave birth to us in spirit? And by the word of truth emphasizes the importance of reading the Bible and hearing it preached. Joe in Sunday school this morning was talking about scattering seed. That's the word that we throw out there. And that's the means that God chooses to bring people to him. 
God brought us forth by the word of truth. He gave birth to us by the word of truth, the word that is the Bible, the word that is the message of redemption that we have in Christ. Please don't lose sight of that. The Spirit works in us by applying the words of God effectually to our lives to make us new. If you want to be new in Christ, study the word. Listen to it preached. And grow. Salvation is from God. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth. God is sovereign over all, and we can trust him. Finally, this passage says that he brought us forth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God has a plan of salvation for all creation. And as somebody who loves the natural world, I'm looking forward to see what the world will be like when it's remade. I wish I had been there in Eden to see what it was like before the fall, but I'm looking forward in expectation of what the new creation will look like, the new heavens and the new earth. We are our first fruits of his creatures. The first fruits is like the first blueberries you pick off of the vine in the spring, and the first strawberry or the first apple. You know there's more to come, but those first ones are good. So let's look forward in expectation. James touches on so many subjects in these few verses that we haven't had time to delve deeply into most of them. But the good news is that he comes back to many of these themes throughout the book. So we'll be able to get more into this stuff as we progress. But I want you to be left with these three answers to questions. And the first one is, who is God? If you don't understand that, you're going to fall when you face trials. God is solid. He was first. He's the father of heavenly lights. And he's the one who gave us birth. He is good and we can trust that everything he works for the lives of the believers is for our good. Secondly, what does it mean to remain steadfast? It means that we lean into God for wisdom rather than turning to tricks. It means that we trust in our exaltation, in our spiritual exaltation, not in our earthly wealth. It means that we remain steadfast even when things are difficult. When things are good, it's easy to praise God. It's also easy to forget to praise him. That We all turn to him when we're in trouble, don't we? We should. And we should stay with him when things are good as well. So it means to remain steadfast, to have solidly locked in the foundation of our beliefs that Jesus is God and he is alive, not dead. We are his servants. And that is where we need to rest. When we face difficult times, we look back at the difficult times that we've been through. Sometimes I like to tell myself the story of the Exodus. You see every little thing, everything that seemed like it should be evil, resulted in Joseph being in Egypt at just the right time to save so many people. And it just goes on and on and on. And Israel did that. They remembered the things that God has done. You see that in the defense that the apostles make before the rulers when they're on trial for their faith. They talk about the things that God has done throughout history. We should be doing the same thing both in the history of the Bible and in our own lives. And that will carry us through so we can stay steadfast. 
And finally, why should we remain steadfast? Because there's a crown of life waiting for us. Because creation will be remade. And I'd like to be there to enjoy it. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your faithfulness that you don't change. Thank you for your goodness and the things that you do to bless us. God, I pray that we would trust you completely. When we hurt, when we doubt, I pray that we would lean into you and be solid and steadfast, that we would meet up under the testing that you have for us, that you would bring us through rejoicing even when we're not happy. God, we know that that's something we can't do on our own. And so give us your spirit to do that, to make us strong. Amen. Would those who are going to start